You already met me. I'm Josh, and I'm also on the teaching team, so I get to unpack this passage for us. Here's my opening question. How, what would people say about your enjoyment level of your job currently? Chuckle, chuckle. The, those in your family, those around you, your fellow coworkers, your boss, people in your neighborhood, like what would they, scale one to ten, ten, this lady's through the moon about her job, or one, she's going off the rails, it's, it's not good. What would they say about your current view of your job? We're not going to make you share, we're not going to have any counseling provided for you, just deal with it. I just wanted to start with that question. Because we've been in this Ephesians letter, it's written by a guy named Paul, and there's a there's an outline, there's a framework for how Paul's walking through, but Paul has these moments where he kind of goes off on these tangents, and he goes off and he prays. He's in a mid-sentence, he kind of pauses, drifts off into prayer, comes back, finishes his thought. This is one of those moments where he kind of drifts off, and he's talking about his current job, his role, and he is through the moon about what he gets to do with his life, to preach the gospel. So the original title for this was The Privilege of Preaching Christ, but as I've been reading through this passage, this is the big idea I've come to see that's in this passage. It is, we have up there, we should see preaching Christ, I added a word there, as an absurd privilege. That's, that's what I've just been dwelling on through these words of Paul, is he sees it as a privilege, but he also sees it as an absurd privilege. That word absurd is absolutely unreasonable illogical it doesn't make sense and that's what the essence we're going to get as you listen to the words of Paul as he talks about his job we get this absurd privilege of preaching Christ so my message is just answering two questions what is that privilege and what makes it so absurd what is that privilege and what makes it so absurd I want this to sink in today so let's pray together and ask God to really hone in with us this morning pray with me Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul, who was very human, and yet used him to do these profound things. God, I pray his words would sink in today, that God, as we get to look at our task as Christians, that we would see it fresh, we would be surprised again with the role you've given us here on this earth, with our lives, God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's the first question. What is this privilege? There's 7, 8, 9, 10. Those are the verses today. We're going to walk through this very simply. What is this privilege? Go to verse 7, and we're going to look at this here. Verse 7, Paul kind of overviews his next few verses. He says this, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Of this gospel. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard somebody from stage talk about the gospel and say, it's not advice, it's good. It's good. The gospel is good news. And Paul's saying, of this good news. And before I dive into the text and kind of unpack the words behind it, I just want us to stop and say, when is the last time we stopped and had a moment with ourselves and with the Lord and answered the question, what is the gospel? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you may think you have an answer to what Christianity is. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're probably a lot like me, and you've kind of assumed your answer to be correct this whole time. And I don't think Christians in the room have heretical answers to that question. 
But I was challenged uh, through my seminary course I'm in to write a page answering, what is the gospel? And when I first saw that assignment, I thought, this seems childish. Like, that's what we ask the third graders who want to get baptized. Tell us what the gospel is. I've moved on from that. And they challenge us every year to look back at that paper and see where have you developed, where have you grown, where have you seen the gospel more comprehensive, more beautiful, more deep. So I just want to encourage us, before we get through the book of Ephesians, sit down and spend some time and answer the question, what is the gospel? It's a great activity. We have our interns do it. Chandler's an intern. He had to write it. And here's what is just across the board what happens with everybody. Myself, the interns, whoever I've had do this, we all kind of fall in the same vein of answering the gospel. We, we tend to miss stuff. Most of us jump in and say something along the lines of, God is holy, correct. We are sinners, also correct. Jesus was our perfect substitute. Check, check, check. Put your faith in Jesus. All true. Nobody would fail the gospel test with that. And yet, we don't talk about any beginning parts of the Bible. Like, why? How? Why is this earth here? Genesis is left out of most of our talks of the gospel. That God created a perfect world. The Hebrew word is shalom. Perfect unity and peace. Everything's in harmony. And very few of us talk about Adam and Eve kicking us off into a world of sin. I never talk about Israel, and that's the bulk of the Bible, that God made these promises through this people, this unfolding plan God was laying out, culminating in the person of Jesus, who offers salvation, yes, to us individually as we repent of our sins, but also is renewing all things we've been seeing in this book of Ephesians. And he's got much bigger plans than just a bunch of forgiven people walking into heaven saying, oh, nice to see you here. He is renewing all things on earth. And he's coming back one day to make all things new. Answer the question, what is the gospel? And go back and just see where you might be truncating it like I have. Where you might be overemphasizing things to the detriment of others. But the gospel is good news that we'll never get to the bottom of. And Paul says, of this gospel, what's he say? I love this next line. I was made a minister. That word is the word for deacon, servant. It can be used as a waiter. I love that. My mom's been a waitress my whole life. Of this gospel, I have been made a waitress. The dish has been prepared. It's the gospel. I get to bring that dish out and serve it to others. I get to bring the gospel out and serve it to others. I have been made a waiter, a servant, a restaurant worker, bringing the good news to the people who need the good news. That is beautiful. And that Paul says that's his job and that's our job. We are servants. We are waiters. We are waitresses taking the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. What's he say next? According to our awesomeness and our might and our good words and our good works and just our general awesomeness in all things according to the gift of God's grace. Our resume as we become waiters for God is God's grace. Why you? Ask him. Why you? I know you. I don't know. Ask him. According to God's grace. I was talking to one mom at our senior dinner we just had, and she says, I love this church. I feel like I used to get grace as a piece of the pie, and now grace here 
is communicated as the whole pie that we all get to enjoy, according to his grace. What's Paul say next? By the working of his power. It's God's grace that makes it happen. We just sang a bunch of songs about his power in us. And it's according to his power that we have the ability to even do what we need to do as waiters for God. We are servants of God. We get to serve the gospel. That's what we say here. Go to the next slide. We get to serve the gospel. That's our role. Are you excited about it? We get to bring the main dish for the rest of our lives to people who need to hear the main dish of the good news of Jesus Christ. My wife and I love to eat, love to eat. A lot of us love to eat. And we love to go to restaurants and we both do the same thing. We, we aren't one of, some of you are those couples where you just get the same thing. My wife and I both ask the same thing. Give us your top two things, waiter, waitress. And they give it and we always order whatever they recommend. And the best experience we get at restaurants are when the servants are so happy to be serving the food that they are so proud about because they love it. That is the Christian life. We get to be excited waiters bringing the good news of the gospel to all we encounter. We get to bring the good news of the gospel to all those we encounter. There's a passage as I was reading through this section. It reminded me of a song I used to sing when I first became a Christian. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. And it comes from this psalm. For a day in your courts, this is David speaking, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I love this next line. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You have that spirit about you when it comes to being a waiter of the gospel? David says, I'd rather stand at the door than live in the most luxurious mansion that anybody else in the world could provide. As long as the door I'm standing at is my Lord's. This is a privilege, a mighty privilege to bring the gospel, to preach, to evangelize, to bring good news to this world. I could stop there and this would be a pretty good message, decent enough. But I've... What struck me as I studied this passage is I was going to make that point the bulk of my message. And as I just kept dwelling on Paul's words and how he kind of talked about himself and his privilege and this task, this is part of it. This privilege, this weightiness, the respect and honor for the task at hand. But if you stop here, you miss the essence of Christianity, I think. Because I go to a barbershop that's so diverse. I'm good friends with Mark, who's a Russian Jew there. The bulk of the staff are Jehovah's Witnesses. There's a Muslim there. There's a couple of people who don't really care what they are. But all the religious people in there are the same. They are convinced that they have the true message. And they are 100% convinced that it's their job, their privilege, their honor to bring that message to anyone who sits in their chair. Just like us Christians. This whole privilege of being the servant of the message is not unique to Christianity. There's much more reverent Muslims out there who tremble at the thought of being able to share the words of Allah with others. What makes Christianity unique is this word, absurd. Totally unreasonable. 
We could end here, but Paul doesn't end here. He gets into the absurdity of his job as a preacher of the gospel. So this brings us to our next question. What makes this so absurd? I have three things that I think Paul says in this text here. So if you have your Bibles, go to verse 8 here. What makes this task, this privilege of preaching the gospel, bringing the gospel, so absurd? Verse 8 says this. He kind of zones in on him now. To me, though I, in the very least of all these saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. In the original text, this gets a lot more quirky. Paul actually kind of makes up some words to flesh out the absurdity of what just happened. It says there, I, the very least of all the saints. That word very least is a word he kind of had to make up. It's kind of like my kids as they're learning the English language. They never really get to the right word as you're supposed to change it. What's the biggest? The biggest distis, dad. I'm the biggest distis of my brothers. That's not a word, but I get what you're saying. (laughs) Paul says I'm the least, which is the very bottom. And he kind of makes a jump in the Greek that doesn't really exist. I'm the leaster. I'm the leastest of all the saints. If you read any of Paul's writings, he's always humbly expressing who he is. In some cases, he's talking about a sin and how devastating it is. In this case, he's not even talking about a sin. He's like, as I look out at fellow Christians, I am the leastest. There's nobody leaster than me in this room. So here's the first absurdity. The littlest ones get to share the biggest news. Are you the leastest? If so, God can use you to share the biggest news. Where do I get that word biggest from? He says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That word there is Based on the word tracing, you're following someone's footsteps, and eventually it runs out. I, the leastest in the room, get to tell people about the path, following the person that never ends. And I think Christians get God in the same way my kids get infinity. My five-year-old just learned infinity. He thinks he's impressive now. Hey, Dad, guess what number I'm thinking of right now? What? Infinity. (laughs) What's bigger than infinity? What would he say? Infinity plus one. What's bigger than infinity plus one? Infinity plus two. Now, my background before I became a pastor, I was a math teacher. I went and got graduate work done in math. And I remember sitting in the classroom where this reality in my head. Because I was in grad school for math, and my concept of of infinity was the same as my five-year-old. It's really big. What's bigger than really big? Infinity plus one. And I was sitting in this class number theory. I won't nerd out and bore you guys, and (laughs) you guys fall asleep on me. But here's what mathematicians who study number theory and set theory and all these things that none of you are ever going to go research, but it's interesting. He said there's infinitely many different sizes of infinity. And then we had to prove part of it. 
There's this infinity that's this big, and there's an infinity that's this big, and it's not infinity plus one. And there's an infinity that's bigger than that infinity. And I just sat there as a Christian, I thought, that's eternity. That's infinity. That's the unsearchable riches of Christ. We can put a word to infinity and think we have it nailed, but there's infinity, and there's the next size infinity, and there's the next size infinity on forever. Amazing grace says the first 10,000 years, we're going to be praising him, and the next 10,000 years, and the next 10. Unsearchable riches of Christ. Here's what else I learned when I was in getting my math degree there. The people who are most aware of the unsearchableness of just this scientific world are the ones who have done the most research. Because all my math professors were humble men and women. I ask them, you know everything about everything. And they'd say, I know a sliver of a sliver. My PhD is in this tiny little sliver of this branch of mathematics, which sits under this branch of mathematics, which we've just scratched the surface on. We get to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know who are very humble people about medical answers? Not you all in the room who just have Google at your fingertips. It's the legitimate doctors who have studied, and you ask them, and their answers are, I know this much. I kind of know the brain. You're a brain doctor. You should really know the brain. I kind of know the brain. I asked my neighbor, I really know the brain. Let me tell you the top three answers from the Google. <laughs> Unsearchable. Whether it's science, or if you're a cook, a chef, you are just scratching the surface of the flavors you've tried in this world. Everything we put our hands and our feet and our mouths to, as we dabble in Christ's world, we experience the unsearchable riches of Christ. And the gospel news is no different. It's untraceable. It's unsearchable. The best picture I have of this for us is, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 14 is, it's a story all of us know about Jesus feeding more people than he should have been able to feed. Jesus says this, they don't need to go away, let's give them something to eat. Jesus said to him, or they said to Jesus, we only have five loaves here, Jesus, and only two fish. Jesus said, bring them here to me. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. I love this visual. They're walking over a waiter, feeding, go back to the chef. Let's continue. And they all ate and were satisfied. And then the waiters are standing around. And they took up 12 baskets full of all the broken pieces that were left over. And those who ate that day were about 5,000 men, not including women and children. Jesus, are you sure we got enough? Just get the bread, Peter. You sure this simple little childlike story of Jesus and sin and a cross is enough for my neighbor who has destroyed his life? Are you sure this is enough? Just take the bread of life and give it to him. There will be leftovers every time. That's phenomenal news. The unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the first absurdity. Here's the next one we see in Paul's words here. 
The estranged and divided ones are God's plan A for unity in this world. Let me read that again. The estranged and divided ones are God's plan A for unity in this world. Where do I get this from in the text? So verse 7 or verse 8, we're going to start there again. And Paul makes two points in this 8 and 9 section here. It says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, I am the leastest of saints, this grace was given to me. He gives two reasons. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches, verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul says, I am the leastest, and I get to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I get to bring to the church, I bring light to his plan, the mystery. And if you haven't been with us, you might not know what the mystery is. The mystery is this. Luke just did a great job unpacking it. The mystery is this, that there's a Jewish people that God has always spoken to and through. And Jesus is the promised one of the Jewish people. And all the Jews of that day said, some of them said, hooray. And now there's Gentile people, everyone else, any non-Jew. And the Jews thought, oh, the Gentiles are just going to become Jews and come into this family. And the plan was, no, these two are going to become one in God's family. That's what we just spent so much time on. Jew, Gentile, one. And Paul says, it's my job to bring that to light, to shine a light on that mystery that Jew and Gentile now one in Christ Jesus. Why is this absurd? Who was the Apostle Paul? He was the Jew. And not a kind Mr. Rogers Jew. He was the Jew who was furious towards anyone who was muddying up the Jewish faith. So much so that he killed people. He stood by as people were killed who took Judaism and swerved it just slightly. In the the book of Philippians, another letter to churches, he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Of a Pharisee, I was the most zealous you'd ever know. I was the Jew. And now he's left that life behind, and now he's the apostle for the Gentiles. It makes no sense. None of us would have written that story. I was trying to, I've been racking my brain all weekend just sitting there. What is this equivalent to? Like what? And I wrote down this. This is like Kim Jong-un getting an American flag tattooed on his forehead and singing God Bless America for a YouTube video and it going viral across the whole world. And at the end, Kim Jong-un saying, I endorse this message. (laughs) Nobody picks the Jew, the ravenous Jew who wants Judaism to stay unique and distinct to bring the message to the Gentiles and muddy up what used to be a sweet, closed religion. God does that. Why? Because the absurdity shows his grace and his goodness. I wrote, God's grace is bigger than we could ever think. And God's plan is far more absurd than any of us would ever dare think of ourselves. What does that mean for us in the room? Some of you are living this absurdity already. Like some of you are leading ministries, encouraging people in areas of life where you have no business being a spokesperson. 
Some of you have battled addiction your entire lives, and now you're the spokesperson for freedom. Some of y'all have been terrible parents, just terrible. And now God is using you to bring light into the area of parenting for others. Some of you have destroyed every relationship you've ever been a part of. And God is using you to build community wherever you go. It's absurd. My mom grew up in a very volatile house. Irish guy who liked to drink married a Mexican woman who didn't like his drinking. And they liked to do nothing but fight. And I ask her about her childhood from time to time, and she gives short, quick answers. She was also a military brat, so she bounced around everywhere. So no real community in a place ever, and a family life that was just sketchy at best. And my mom's been in a restaurant now for 30 years. And here's what people love about Mo. She brings community to them. She is their community. That's absurd. That's how God's grace works. Apostle Paul, what are you doing? I'm going to the Gentiles. What? Trust me. Better yet, trust him. He's got this. I just want some of you to dream. Some of you are stuck in some stuff right now. And you should be bogged down by your sin. But what this story tells us is that God's grace is far bigger and far more absurd than any of us could imagine. And some of y'all are going to do some amazing things in an area of life where you have no business currently even having an opinion about. Because God's grace is huge and it's absurd. And he takes people like Paul and he makes him a unifying factor for the Jew-Gentile divide. That's the second episode. Here's the third one. This multi-layered plan of God is made known through the finite, simple local church. Where do I get that from? So this last passage, there's nothing absurd in the original language. It's absurd to us Western minds who don't ever really think about stuff we can't see, angels, demons. But let's just read what Paul says in verse 10 here. So he says, I'm here to preach to the Gentiles, verse 9, and to bring to light this unifying mystery that no one saw coming, not even me, as I was killing people. Verse 10, his big exclamation point on his message. So that through the church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, through the leastest little church, the manifold, that word is many layers, many colors. It's used to describe flowers with all these beautiful petals. Through this plan that no one sees coming, no one experiences fully, but God's unfolding it, his wisdom, and he's showing it. How is his plan unfolding before our eyes? Through Redemption Gateway. Little old 8743 East Pecos, Suite 110 people in the room right now. God's plan of manifold wisdom is going forth. To who? The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That's insane. Angels and demons are watching little old Redemption Church Gateway thinking, what? God's doing 
Now, this blew my mind. The first time, there's a passage like this in 1 Peter where Peter says essentially the same thing. That this plan of salvation is unfolding. It's been unfolding for all of time. And you know who's just begging to watch it unfold? The angels. And I read that and I thought, gosh. Because so many of us have a view of angels that's just kind of, they're kind of running alongside our car trying to keep us safe the best they can. (laughs) Or flapping their chubby little baby wings just trying to keep us safe. Falling down, picking us up. And the angels in the Bible are scary, fierce. Everyone's terrified whenever anyone sees an angel. And those fiercely terrifying angels, shh, redemption gateway, I'm watching them right now. That's crazy. Because if you were to ask, I wrote, why this is so crazy? Because if you ask a fundamental question, why did it create the world? Most people in the world would get that wrong. And a lot of Christians would get that wrong. Why did God create the world? I think the top most thought through theological answer would be because God loves us. And that is a true statement. But that's not the motivating factor on why God wanted this world to be created. He had all the love he wanted in his triune self. If you read the Bible front to back and you kind of take note of when God talks about his motivations, it's this. To make himself fully known and to make his glory known throughout the entire cosmos. That's why God created the world. Leads us to the next question. How is God making himself known? Genesis says he makes himself known through creation, where even humans in the book of Romans says, an unsaved pagan can look at creation and think, wow, there's something powerful behind this. And then Ephesians here tells us the angels and demons and rulers and authorities are watching the church, Redemption Gateway, and they're thinking, wow, the manifold wisdom of God. Those two people should not be together. Jew and Gentile, I never saw that coming. Are you kidding me? He saved that person. The angels are watching, and they just think, wow. The angels are watching this church and thinking, wow, what a God. What a God. I was talking to our kids director, Arnold Reese, and he said something. He says, it's not our job to be more amazed, more amazing for Jesus. It's our job to be more amazed by Jesus. I thought, Arnold, that's profound. Did you come up with that? He's like, no, it's in the bathroom. (laughs) I'm like, oh. So all the best theologians in the church, they just use the restroom a lot here. That's what Paul's getting at. That's at the core of this absurdity. We're not that great. Paul's not that great. We're not that cool. We're not that awesome. We're not that righteous. But wow, God is doing a mighty work, not around us, but right through the middle of us. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. I wrote, Jesus takes the littlest of people And he allows their little stumbling, sinful mouse to be the megaphone of good news for this world. Jesus takes the most hateful, divided people, and he teaches them how to unite and sing in harmony. And Jesus takes little old churches like this one and makes us the greatest show the heavenly realm has ever seen. Wow. There's a lot of pilots in the room. My friend Greg's a pilot, and he says he used to fly right over the top of this church every time. 
And he'd look at it and think, oh, there's my church. Here's what I know to be true. A thousand pilots fly that path, and no one looks down on things. Wow, look at that little warehouse. Look at that R sign. It's such good. Wow, wow. No one. A thousand pilots fly over us over the course of a year, and nobody takes a second glance at us. And this passage says God is watching, and his angels are looking down thinking, wow, how good is God? Look what he's doing in and through this people. What's our response? Of this gospel, I was made a waiter according to his grace and his power that he will work through us. This is a phenomenal task we've been given. It's a privilege, and it's absurd, and none of us saw it coming, and none of us deserved it, and yet we get to be a part of this. And the heavenly realm watches, because this is amazing what's happening in here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for letters Paul wrote that just give insight into Christianity that we find nowhere else. This mystery of the Jew and Gentile coming together. And just Paul himself, as he unpacks your gospel in an autobiographical sense, he highlights the absurdity of the people God uses and the people God calls and the people God goes towards and the churches that get to be a part of God's unfolding, unfolding magnificent wisdom here on earth. God, I've been praying just for a wow for my soul, for my heart at what we get to be a part of. God, your gospel is deep. Your riches are unsearchable and your wisdom is untraceable. And yet you let us be a part of bringing that news to others, God. Let us be a church that is wowed by that reality. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.